This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Michael Siciliano about creative control, the ambivalence of work in the culture industries. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Uh, this is a great book. It's really, really interesting. Um, it speaks to lots of, of kind of um, important debates that are going on um, in cultural studies, in sociology, um, in kind of, you know, particular fields like the study of cultural and creative industries. But but also, as I was reading, it, it kind of struck me that the book is basically a story of like what work is like now and, you know, what it's like to do particular jobs, particularly jobs that people seemingly think are kind of like, you know, to, to use actually one of the key terms that comes up in the book, you know, jobs that people think are really kind of cool. Um, and I suppose the place to start is, is I guess, a question about, like, why were you interested in, in studying, uh, I suppose, what we'd call kind of like creative labor? Like, what, what's sort of different and special about um, these these creative jobs? Sure. I mean, um, you know, at a very kind of high level um, over the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, um, there's been a lot of talk, um, you know, from economists, from sociologists, from all sorts of different kinds of scholars and public policy makers about the importance of, um, you know, what Robert, uh, Wright called, you know, symbolic analysts, uh, what Richard Florida called the creative class. Um, and, um, you know, these, these people are thought of as kind of like the motors of the economy or the, the people who will, um, are really central to, um, not just work, but just, you know, producing value for, you know, global, uh, global economic activity or whatever. And, um, so, I mean, there's, there's that, right. And I think the, the project kind of stems off of, you know, that broader kind of interest that people have in that. But I, th- I think for me, um, something I was kind of interested in that is more like theoretical is that like when we talk about a creative work or creative workers as being central to the economy, it struck me as quite different than the way we used to think about, or many people still do think about like creativity as being somehow um, resistant to capitalism or resistant to power. And I'm thinking about, um, you know, the work in like cultural studies in the seventies, um, like Stuart Hall and, and, uh, Dick Heptage and, and Paul Willis and, and, uh, 
Angela McRobbie, who we were talking about uh, just a, a few minutes before we started recording. And, um, you know, about how people kind of like reinterpret mass culture, or reinterpret capitalist produced commodities, and that that's kind of an act of, you know, resistance, uh, the level of meaning making. And it struck me as that today, actually, the economy or the workplace kind of invites that very same um, kind of activity. And um, so for me, I was just, you know, it's kind of like, well, what does that really do to how we understand the role of being creative under sort of capitalism? Um, if that makes sense. And it, 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 interesting. The book, I suppose, it, it doesn't do this exactly, but, but it kind of says there's like two positions on the, the rise of this, whether we call it like, you know, um, symbolic production or, you know, the kind of um, making of, of culture that is, you know, separate to or distinctive, resistant to um, overarching kind of capitalist production. And that's that on the one hand, the people doing this stuff kind of like, are, you know, just capitalist cogs in the machine and they don't kind of get, um, you know, how they're being exploited and alienated. Um, and, and I suppose that comes through actually in, in the contemporary cultural studies literature. And then on, on the other hand, and, and you mentioned Richard Florida, who, who I guess is one of the great kind of advocates of um, this uh, kind of particular whether we call them like a new class or like a subclass or, or, you know, subsector of the economy, whereby like everything these people do is like awesome and it, you know, raises local tax revenues and they have like total kind of autonomy and, you know, like they're like a new, uh, what, what was the, what was the book subtitle? It's like, you know, how they're reshaping the world of work or, or, or something like this. And I suppose you're trying to say, look, it's kind of a bit more complicated than that. Um, and, and I suppose this, comes with how you theorize kind of what creativity is and, and what it is to be kind of creative in work you know there's a bit of kind of autonomy but also there are definitely kind of constraints for sure yeah i mean um on one hand people are kind of given a long leash and um and are kind of invited to you know be creative um and that can mean a lot of different things. Um, and, and I can talk about that in a second. But um, on one hand, there's this kind of what I call in the book, this kind of like managerial invitation. Um, this kind of, you know, and you, and you see this in a lot of different forms of work. It's not just like work in the culture industries, but lots of forms of kind of tech work or other kinds of jobs. Um, I mean, even like call centers, you see this today. Um, research and call centers where people are kind of invited to be themselves, to express themselves. And, and, and but, but they're, they, they are invited to do so in very particular ways. And um, that's something I get at. I think it's like in the second chapter of the book, which is, um, you know, kind of trying to say, well, there's, there's different discourses of creativity that operate, at work. Um, and so, you know, when managers say they want creative workers, they want this kind of like instrumental, instrumentally kind of pragmatic um, um, creativity where it's about solving kind of like pre 
um, uh, ready-made organizational problems um, and kind of people improvising their way towards solutions to those problems. Um, whereas, you know, workers will talk about, or at least the ones that I spoke with um, for the book, we'll talk about kind of, um, you know, something akin to, um, you know, romantic ideas of artistry or something like that, which is a very different kind of a way of understanding of what it means to be um, creative at work. And, and then um, something else I kind of deal with is like the effect of platforms on creative work and, you know, platforms um, or in the book, it's YouTube uh, invites another kind of creativity, which is the sort of um, quantified um, other oriented kind of entrepreneurialism where it's about kind of achieving metrics. Um, and so, you know, how people achieve these various ends of creativity is kind of up to them or is left up to them either by management or by the platform. Um, but it's always kind of oriented towards particular either organizational goals or, or the, whatever the platform's kind of goals are, which is usually about increasing, you know, audience size. Um, so yeah, people, it's like this, there's this kind of freedom within a very bounded space, or, or it kind of reminds me of a kind of older, um, it's like a punk song, but it's also a kind of situationist track, right? Which is like this kind of like bigger cages with longer chains. Um, that's always kind of something that has been in the back of my mind with when thinking about how these people work. It, it, it's good you mentioned the kind of traditional view of artist uh, creativity and, and, and then, you know, you bring in things like YouTube, the platform economy, because that's the heart of the book is, is the comparison between sort of, dare I say, a kind of a traditional um, mode of, of cultural work um, in the music industry and, and, and in the studio. And then, um, you know, this this kind of new and emerging mode of, of cultural work. Um, and and you, you've got these two um, organisations you look at, uh, Sonico um, and, and the future. Um, and before we start to kind of unpack, you know, what, what's going on with, with both of them, how they're similar, how they're different, um, I wonder if you could just say like a little bit about them, you know, maybe just in, in terms of kind of what they do. Like Sonico, you know, I, I think people will be fairly kind of familiar with what like a recording studio is and what it does. But the future as, um, you know, a kind of platform economy content producer, if, if that's even the right word, um, listeners might kind of be sort of less familiar with this uh, this new kind of, of uh, cultural work and cultural industry. Yeah, I mean, so for me, you can think of both of these as kind of cultural intermediaries of a sort. Um, and um, a recording studio, um, yeah, it's a fairly conventional kind of kind of organization, basically musicians or uh, production companies will um, hire out the studio or rent the studio um, to record music, right? And it, you know, it looks like the things that people might see in movies or television shows where there's like the, you know, um, the room where the musicians set up and then there's the person behind the, you know, console with all the knobs and things like that. And they set up microphones and they record music. And, and there's some things that are a little idiosyncratic about, um, Sonico in that it's also a, 
a rehearsal studio, but there's actually kind of like a lot of those in LA and places like Nashville and, and New York where it's kind of this multi-use facility. Um, but yeah, it's a recording studio um, the, um, where music's made. And it's kind of a mid, mid-level studio. So you get like a range of different kinds of people coming in from like teenage ska bands to, to, um, to like Grammy, uh, Grammy award winners, right? And you get everything in between. Um, the future, which is kind of a, you know, the name is a little bit tongue in cheek uh, because it's, you know, a lot of people in the social media space like to say, oh, we're the future of media. Um, the future is a, a, what, um, what some people are calling kind of like a social media intermediary organization. And in particular, it's what they call a multi-channel YouTube network or MCM. These have kind of um, stopped being quite as important in the YouTube space as they call it. But um, basically they're akin to uh, sort of like a one part talent management agency, one part, you know, music or film distributor um they mediate between the platform and people who create content or what is sometimes called content creators which is um includes influencers but is slightly is is more expansive than that um but basically what 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 um these social media intermediaries do like the future um is they kind of sign people to management contracts. Um, they perform some degree of, of kind of client services for people who make social media content. Uh, and in exchange, they receive a percentage of um, the content creators' profits, uh, whatever they get from either ad revenue or from um, like brand deals and things like that. The sort of similarities and, and, and differences are pretty, you know, kind of kind of clear. Even to, to begin with, even though you know we, we might say they're both you know kind of um, providing a service or, or whatever, but things like you know revenue models are different. Um, the, you know the the kind of um, the way they go about um, sort of dealing with, with clients and all this kind of stuff and. I wonder, and, and this might be a slight kind of misreading of, of, of the book, but it struck me that you had perhaps more, if not sympathy, but, you, you know, th- there was a certain engagement with Sonico around um, the, the kind of workers' um, practices and, and their, you know, kind of working lives and maybe a bit more kind of caution, um, you know, if still, you, you know, sort of, empathetic engagement with with the workers in the future and, and maybe we'll deal with with kind of both of them in, in turn as, as the book does so it'd be good to hear a bit about the sense of the kind of like working life and and i think you used the the term the kind of social regime um in in the uh, the recording studio in, in sonico um particularly the kind of positives and and, and negatives you, you know the kind of uh, sense of sort of engagement craft um, you know that kind of sense of being involved in aesthetic production but at the same time you know pretty low pay and some you know quite kind of um alienating or you know some some distance from the uh the products if we might call them that 
that the studio was producing. Right. Uh, you want me to talk about that a little bit, or yeah, that'd be great. Uh, okay. 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 Sorry, I wasn't. I wasn't sure um, where you're going with that. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I suppose yeah. I, I've given quite a, a sort of summary of uh, <laughs> yeah of, of what you would do with with uh, uh, maybe you could add like uh, you know a little bit of kind of color and flavor from the ethnography. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the recording studio, I mean, I think you're right in, in uh, highlighting that there is kind of like a, a difference in feel um, between how I deal with um, Sonico and how I deal with the future. And I, I think um, in part of that, I think that highlights the role of, of um, an ethnographer's kind of subjectivity when they're interacting with people. And also it has to do a little bit, I think, with the nature of of um the access that i had so um um but yeah let's start with with life at sonica i mean like it's a recording studio and the music industry or or just culture industries in general but music in particular and music recording even more specifically is very gendered um it's very kind of there's a very strong kind of like masculine work culture um, and a lot of kind of, you know, people making off color jokes and uh, um, geeking out about music equipment um, and um, kind of, you know, talking about where to get the cheapest taco that still tastes good and, um, and, and things like that. And, um, a lot of kind of, I don't know, a lot of almost kind of like a reminiscent of like, you know, ethnographies of kind of like blue, more blue collar workplaces, um, where there's a lot of kind of like joking and gentle ribbing, uh, among the people that work there. Um, and, but also, and, and so there's this social element there's also an intensely technological element where people are constantly talking about just these you know kind of immersive moments had in relation to different kinds of music technologies so like synthesizers are talked about a lot in the book but also recording consoles and just this kind of being enamored with different pieces of equipment that are owned by the studio and it kind of makes this like pleasing experience of, of being at work alongside all of this kind of dense social relationships um, that people have um, different kinds of jokes that people, you know, play on each other um, and things like that. And actually part of, um, so that's, what's kind of going on there. Um, and actually like part of the labor um, that they perform in addition to like, you know, coming up with new ways of, running the studio or new ways of, you know, selling musicians on, you know, instrument cables in between sessions or whatever. Um, part of their value as labor, part of their labor's value is their ability to kind of generate social ties between um, the studio and its clients or generate um, kind of a good reputation for the studio. Like, oh, those are the people who, you know, uh, can kind of creatively improvise when things go wrong in the studio that kind of develop a good reputation. And to me, those are like kind of classically social um, 
in a way, right? They're about like relationships between people and other people or the organization and its potential clients. Um, and so that's why I kind of call it like a social regime of labor because like the value of um, creative labor um, in that context is, is kind of hinges on, on the ability for people to kind of um, generate these kind of very social relationships, reputation or um, uh, um, relationships between clients or something like that. Uh, whereas like the future is much more of a kind of like corporate workplace in a way. I, I realize that that's kind of a vague term, but um, you know, it looks it, the inside of it, these kind of aesthetics of the workplace are very much, um, like one might expect from like more of a tech sector company, like the like sort of stereotype of the tech sector with the open offices and um, everything is kind of rearrangeable. No one really has a fixed workspace um, in a way they kind of feel, um, you know, homeless uh, at work. Um, there's actually something I described, that's something that's described in the book. There's also this like moment where like, you know, the, managers or the human resource people kind of put up a photo booth so that people can like take photos you know it's supposed to be like a fun workplace or something like that and actually what ends up happening is um the people who are laid off or fired which there are a lot turnover was really high there um um, end up taking pictures of themselves on their last day and putting them on the wall and one of the employees refers to that as like the wall of the fallen um, and I think, so like, um, to go back to kind of your question, like, I think their difference in, in the rendering, the ethnographic kind of rendering of these two spaces is that like at, at Sonico, you know, the people there, there were some new employees that came and went, but during the several years that I was on and off doing field work there, there were like the same batch of guys working there and I say that specifically because it was it was pretty much all men there and and so like you know you can really develop relationships with people or just really get a sense for how they are um and they they de you develop a, a bit of comfort with them as well um over the course of several years you know and whereas at the future turnover was quite high um, there were people in executive positions that like when I left the field would say, Hey, you outlasted me. <laughs> um, you know, uh, where like the ethnographer is in the business or is in the workplace longer than the employees are. And so in that space, it's really hard. Um, I think for the ethnographer to really kind of develop the same kind of relationships with people um, and also, I think that says something about the work experience for the employees is that they're very much, um, everything is very tentative, everything is very precarious, uh, and much, much, maybe much more so than, you know, other more conventional uh, culture industries, which are already, you know, well known for being kind of um, the site of like precarious employment. Um and, you know, I think it's something I try to do in the book is to try to link that kind of heightened um, kind of precarity um, to, to it being a platformized um, industry. I mean, the, the other thing you talked several times there about, uh, I guess, 
what we might call the kind of the gender politics of, of the recording studio. And, and, you know, this is all well known, the kind of gender politics of the music industry. But, you know, one thing that struck me about the future was, and again, you know, we, we, there's always the risk of, you know, kind of uh, fetishizing or, you know, having a kind of a fantasy vision of these, I don't know, artisanal forms of cultural production like a recording studio where, you know, people are, as you say, talking about, you know, the kind of quality you get from a particular uh, recording deck or, you know, whatever, like, you know, the kind of the acoustics of a space, this kind of stuff. Whereas the future is, you know, this kind of quantified um, place, you know, you know, where um, things are, are much more, you know, kind of measured and made visible. But there was something, I, I suppose, uniquely depressing about the future's claims to be kind of, you know, participatory, open, the idea that anyone can be a creator, you know, um, that there's the kind of opportunity for a democratization of culture, which, you know, is absolutely not the case in the recording studio. And, you know, the, the book picks up a couple of times on things like, you know, skill and craft and, you know, this kind of stuff. But actually, and you mentioned, you know, kind of outlasting some of the senior staff at the future there was still all the problems of kind of inequality, particularly around kind of, you know, men, white men running stuff, but there seemed to be a kind of a very different story. Um, not to justify that, but, but, you know, basically to almost kind of like paper over those cracks and, and not to talk about it. So it'd be interesting to hear a bit about, I suppose, the kind of like inequalities in Sonico and inequalities in the future and, and why they kind of persist in, in their different ways. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, let's start with the future because it's kind of complicated, right? And, um, um, you know, so, yeah, the future is it's just operating in this kind of like, you know, social media um, industry or social media space, as they might say. And I think they're, you know, despite um, headway that's been made by a number of scholars uh, to point out the opposite of this, there's still kind of a widespread belief that, um, as you said, anyone can produce content, there's uh, sort of platforms level the playing field. Um, and I think what we're seeing in a number of, you know, great books that have come out recently is that that that's not the case at the level of the platform, um, where in, you know, algorithms and other things like the calculation of metrics um, have um, race and class and um, uh, uh, gender and uh, issues around sexuality kind of like built in to the way that those technological systems function. Um, but something I tried to point out is that in, in the book is that in addition to that, <laughs> there's still um, these, uh, there's still hierarchies within various, you know, organizations, um, the future being one of them that are still, you know, uh, have, you know, white, uh, mostly, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, mostly white kind of men at the top. And um, even in a company like The Future, which, which was quite diverse inside the organization in terms of sexuality, in terms of uh, gender, in terms of um, ethnicity, in terms of race, um, um, the leadership was still like white men 
And you can actually see this, I mean, quite literally, like at like board meetings, like women did not have a seat at the table, right? They'd be like quite, they'd be like along the outer ring of seats. And then there would be the, you know, main table that pretty much universally men sat at. Um, And I say this having like taken, you know, head counts at every staff meeting I went to. Um, And so, um, so as a result of that, you get, you know, you get a situation in which people can produce whatever they want on YouTube, but a lot of opportunities for say, like brand partnerships or um, the uh, pitching of particular creators to say movie studios or something like that, um, you know, for work in film or, or whatever, which is something that companies like the future do um, typically went to, um, content that I think most people would find, um, at best, they would at best would find it highly problematic and at worst, just completely disgustingly racist. Um, and so, yeah, so, so there's that going on. So I think like part of what, what's important to me is the highlight is that like, despite this kind of like opening up of, um, the potential for lots of different kinds of people to produce content, um, there are still these very, uh, in a way, conventional hierarchies that uh, contribute to the reproduction of, of a variety of different kinds of uh, inequality, whether that's along lines of gender or race or sexuality. Um, um, it kind of reproduces all of those, which is, I think, very a little different than what happens at, I think, Sonico. Um, which is that you, you have this very, it's like you have a, a very kind of like there were women that work there. Um, but I got the sense that they ended up leaving just because of the kind of broiness of the workplace. Um, but not necessarily because they weren't allowed to be there. Whereas at, at the other place, they were kind of allowed to be in the organization, but only in very kind of specific places. So something I talk about in the, in the book is that like, you know, most of the women that would come in there would be kind of shunted into working on, um, say like beauty vloggers or something like that. Um, and that was like a frequent complaint of, of, of people that I, uh, worked with while I was doing field work. Um, so yeah. Um, so yeah, so even in this sort of social media space, there is kind of this like reproduction of like hierarchies that, you know, reproduce inequality along various lines. Um, whereas I think in the conventional space, um, you still get that for sure. Um, but it, it, it can look, um, quite different. It's tricky balance, you know, you and again, you know, coming back to the impression I got from the book of, you know, you wanting to say, like, there are loads of problems with cultural work in the recording studio, you know, low pay. There are, like, you know, like loads of issues with it. But in some ways, you know, the kind of um, literally the future really isn't, you know, kind of delivering on um, the promises around the kind of, the digital or, or the kind of tech-led 
cultural and, and creative economy. And, and it strikes me as a, as a kind of like concluding question. What what do we sort of do about this? You, you know, is, is is there any way to you know to kind of take I suppose the kind of you know the social world of of the recording studio and have that be the model for the content uh, management space like the future um is it just you know if you're going to be working in a kind of quantified content production intermediary you're going to have to get used to the idea that you know your job security won't be there you know there will be like lots of kind of annoying downsides and you'll probably you know jump to another job or or i say probably or hopefully because you know a couple of the key uh, interviewees ended up kind of out of work and, and not able to um, re-enter jobs particularly kind of straightforwardly and yeah I, I, I guess there is this kind of question of like you know should we be resisting the power of platforms should we be learning lessons from the kind of older forms of of, of cultural work you know should we be saying all cultural work is really bad and we need to like defend bureaucratic modes of like unionized blue and white collar jobs that don't have any of this creativity nonsense associated with it yeah i think that's a good question and it's one i'm not so sure i have um the answers to at the moment which is i think why i kind of conclude with this like opening question like what what do you do um with these situations and i think for me you know something i've been thinking about a lot is that like a lot of what these jobs seem to be missing, and I think you're right to pick up, like, uh, so on one hand, the quantified kind of regime of, you know, the future in the book, but quite literally, like, the future of work is one that is, like, missing a lot of social components, even if it's just the social interaction of your manager telling you what to do, right? Um, a lot of that work, and you're seeing this in studies of, um, you know, there's the book Ghost Work, but also studies of other um, platforms where people are managed by, you know, algorithmic management. I mean, it's not, it, it, you know, or they're managed by metrics and, and, and things like that. Like there's a book, um, Metrics at Work, that came out recently too. And um, that it is kind of removing, you know, a, a so, sort of social component. So maybe there is something to be learned from more conventional modes of creative work. Um, but I also think like, um, you know, this is something touched on in the conclusion of the book is that like a lot of what is going on here is that people aren't paid enough to kind of reproduce themselves. Um, and so they have to engage in a lot of different kinds of job jobs in addition to whatever may be their main job. Um, and then on top of that, they're constantly being invited to be creative, to use their judgment. Um, and yet that judgment, that creativity is always subordinate to someone else's goals. And so you have this curious situation in which people are continuously like being asked to be creative, to use their judgment, and they get to use do so in very particular ways, many of which they don't agree with. And so they feel alienated. Um, they're using their skill, their capacity to make decisions uh, in the service of someone else. And on top of that, they're not paid enough to, um, to reproduce those 
those those skills, those that creativity, that judgment, that creative labor um, that they're using for the job, right? And so they have to kind of engage in this kind of chasing after work all over the place in order to reproduce themselves. And so, you know, I think it puts you, yeah, it puts people in a very difficult situation in the sense that it's they do kind of gain some enjoyment, some pleasure from the job, um, and yet um, um, there's kind of an intense dissatisfaction or intense kind of uh, feelings of, of alienation. And so um, it's, you know, it's unclear. It's kind of ambivalent is, is the way I describe it. It's an ambivalent situation in which it's like something that might compel you to kind of resist or push back or exit um, kind of is in tension with things that are actually quite compelling or quite interesting or quite dynamic. Um, so what the future of work should look like, I think for me or what we need to think about is how is it that we could have something that resembles, I don't know, I don't know if I'd say full, full on bureaucratic kind of mode of organizing work, but um, something that regulates work um, in a more meaningful way than just saying like, okay, well, you're, you're free to be an entrepreneur of yourself. Um, but something that is also just as kind of aesthetically or affectively engaging as a lot of different kinds of creative work um, can be. Right. And I think that in some way that that's kind of the a problem of um, labor politics is that like, well, you're confronted with, you know, workplaces in which you have a dozen computer screens blinking at you and cell phones kind of vibrating against your pocket and or in your pocket and sights and sounds that are kind of like engaging, even if they're, you know, maybe make people uncomfortable. They're certainly like engaging. Right. And people talk about that actually quite positively in, in some of the interviews in the book. Um, you know, it's the best video game ever when I'm looking at my data analytics or, Oh, I just spent the afternoon, you know, merged with the, you know, music equipment or whatever. And, um, and when you're confronted with like a working day, that is, yeah, kind of alienating, that is kind of precarious, but is also dynamic and like engaging. And then, you go to, you know, some sort of like stuffy meeting in which, you know, people are wanting to sing old union songs from the early 20th century or something like that. It's just like not as compelling, I think, um, you know, so I, um, so something I kind of con con conclude on, and I don't know if this is a, a clear cut answer to your question, but um, is that, you know, any kind of like politics of work in the 21st century or in the, you know, 2021 or whatever um, needs to be, you know, engaging at an aesthetic or kind of affective level um, in order to be kind of um, compelling for work and also needs to revolve around this issue um, of judgment, which I brought up um, a few minutes ago. And I think to that end, at least to the, the issue of judgment, you're already kind of seeing that um, in various kind of creative 
or culture sectors, um, you're already kind of seeing that um, with um, Google, for example, right? There's a lot of discussion um, around ethics and people are kind of, you know, pushing back. I want saying I want control over um, the ethical aspects of my, uh, what I would say, my creative labor or knowledge work or whatever. And you're already kind of seeing some of that, you know, bear out. So, you know, in some ways, I think to go back to your question, like what, what lessons can we learn? I mean, I think that these absences, these things that are um, either denied or kind of like left out of these creative labor processes um, are the potential, you know, fault lines or line or fractures um, along which that labor might be organized. And so for me, it's, it's both about this sort of affective or kind of aesthetic engagement um, or what I call in the book, aesthetic enrollment, right? Um, um, and then also this sort of like politics that revolves around judgment or, or uh, um, which, which you are actually kind of, we're starting to see, uh, at least in the tech sector, we'll see what happens in the culture sector, but, or, but um, yeah. All that uh, ambivalence that you talk about sounds like the perfect kind of setting for more research, another book, uh, another set of projects. So uh, what are you going to be kind of working on next? Or are you, you know, kind of thinking about something completely different? You know, you've had quite enough of awesome, really cool record studios and like literally seeing the future of work. Um, and are you going to do something completely different? Uh, right now I have a couple, uh, projects in various stages of development. Um, so one is something I'm working on with like a colleague that is more about like how it is quite different. Um, it's about how, um, uh, people with disabilities, um, navigate like online dating platforms, um, and so that's still very much about platforms, but another project that it's kind of in the very beginning stages of development, but, be, but kind of builds on this stuff um, is um, really thinking about like what place means in the digital economy and um, how that, how place maybe relates to how people imagine um, platforms offering them a future. Um, so one thing that, you know, I kind of got a little bit of in the research for the book, but, um, but just, just a slight inkling, um, is that, you know, where people are really shapes the way that they think of platforms as offering an opportunity. Um, so, you know, for example, you, you talk to, you know, people making YouTube content in Los Angeles and they imagine the platform is giving them a sort of future by uh, offering them a future by, you know, future pathway to Hollywood. Whereas um, some of the folks that I met in the Midwestern United States or what I call, would call the Rust Belt, which is like where I'm from originally, um, you know, deindustrialized parts of the country. Uh, a lot of them kind of imagine the platform as kind of offering uh, just an alternative to unemployment, um, which is quite a different way of, um, you know, basically either I 
you know, go work at a Walmart or something like that, where I can make YouTube content, which is a very different imagined future. Um, when compared to like, oh, if I make, you know, YouTube content, I could be a, a Hollywood star or something like that. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of thinking about what that means for, you know, the future of work, what that means for um, how people are able to imagine a future um, amidst, you know, kind of decaying industry or um, um, deindustrialization and um, well, it seems also like, a, you know, the fallout from the pandemic, um, you know, how is it that people are able to imagine, um, something resembling like a livable life or a life worth, um, living in their view. Um, and, and I guess that's something that kind of fascinates me and also seems like a really, um, kind of pressing issue given the situation the world kind of finds itself in.